0: text this morning will be verses 9 through 10. Would you stand with me out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? I'm going to begin by reading verse 2 for context purposes. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. And here's our text for this morning. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath of God to come. You may be seated. I realize uh, the older I get that I run the risk of repeating myself. And if I'm not repeating myself, I may be telling stories that date myself so much that I can't be understood anymore. I'm going to take that risk right now to speak uh, for just a moment about something that used to be common when I was a young man and that's testimonies. I don't even know if they give them anymore but they used to give testimonies in church and uh, every preacher's kid worth his salt had one and they knew how to tell it story usually uh, would go something like this and stop me if you heard it before at least watch the movie Footloose it always begins in the same way a daddy who was a preacher who was too strict on his kids who imposed a bunch of um, frivolous rules upon them in order to make himself look good. And as the children would grow older, they began to inevitably rebel. And so as the story unfolds, the children began to buck the father's demand, eventually turning into open rebellion, and you can pick your sins, cussing, drinking, doing drugs, Hang out with the wrong crowd only for it to all end very badly in a moment of despair, right? That moment of despair when all of a sudden that that son or daughter came to the point where they realized sin's ruin. And they realized their father hadn't probably been so bad on them. And they remember those stories of the Gospel. And they gave their life to Jesus in that moment. And from there on, they became evangelists. Telling people who are caught up on drugs or the sauce how Jesus can help you beat It, it may not sound familiar to you. I heard lots of them growing up. And if it's true, it's wonderful that somebody who was caught up in sin was saved. But I'm not sure I want that to be the testimony going out, because that's the story of a fool. Someone who knew better and did the wrong thing. That kind of a telling of a conversion story to me is tedious, probably because I heard it too many times. But the story that really grips me is the one that's far more simple. And when I have to see that in the course of the ministry, I've heard many, many times, and it's usually fairly unadorned, that uh, a man or a woman was kicking rocks down the road of life, not serving the Lord, not really even knowing them, and perhaps not even really going to church at all. And all of a sudden, God mysteriously, wonderfully and providentially brought a friend or a family member into their life who began to witness to them and to speak about Jesus. And it it uh, caused them to have their attention pricked. And they began to think about Christianity. And next thing you know, they start showing up to church. They're not even sure why, but, but somebody invited them and they sat there and they began to hear the gospel preached. And before they knew it, God was was doing something marvelous and wonderful in their life. He was saving them. I love that story. It's a deeply encouraging story, even though it's not full of drama. It's one that's full of grace. God doing a marvelous work. So there's conversion narratives that are encouraging and edifying, and there's conversion narratives that I find myself at least a bit tedious. And this morning, I think in these veins or in this direction, because what we really have here in our text is a testimony, a conversion narrative. And one that I've often said, and you may have heard me say this before, I find to be one of the most hope-filled verses in all of Scripture. You turned to God from idols. That's a conversion story. That's a conversion narrative and it's authentic and it's encouraging and it's full of grace. And the thing that I think is so interesting about this conversion story and this testimony is not being told by the Thessalonians. I wonder if you saw this when we began reading our text this morning. We came to verse 9 when it says almost inexplicably or inexplicably, they themselves report they. He didn't say you yourselves report. he says they themselves report. And it's very interesting in the original. It's like headlights. It's something you can't miss. The apostle is accenting who it is who is telling the story. And the storytellers here not the Thessalonians it's witnesses back up into verse 7 here, and and you'll see what um, the apostle is speaking about, whom he is speaking of. He says that there was something remarkable about the faith of these Thessalonians, that they had become an example. I told you that word is tupon. It means to strike something and to impress upon it with a blow, a stamp. He says, that's what you've become to others. Just by the very way you live, you are striking a blow upon others. You are causing others to receive an impact. A spiritual one of that. And so he says that you've become an example to believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And then verse 8, he speaks about how the Word is just thundering forth from Thessalonica. Not from them, but notice from whom... In every place, your faith toward God has gone forth. So we have no need to say for they themselves report. You see here the people who are the messengers and the letter carriers for the testimony about the Thessalonians' remarkable conversion is people who had come to Thessalonica, maybe to do business, maybe for travel, maybe for pleasure. And what they were confronted with was this uh, magnanimous example of the Thessalonians. How there was something electrifying and and wonderful and marvelous and unexplainably uh, happening with them that wasn't human in origin, it was divine. And so when people saw that example, they took it with them wherever they went. And so for hundreds of miles, in all kinds of directions, radiating from Thessalonica, was this thunderous sound of people who experienced conversion. They had turned to God from idols. That's a marvelous testimony of conversion. And that's what we want to think about this morning as we take up our text and its testimony of true conversion. And here's our main point, And we're going to learn about what true conversion is from our text. But our main point is this. True conversion consists in a conscious turning away from sin. A conscious turning away from sin to a life oriented toward God. Here's your main point. Let's unfold it in two parts. It's marked by a clean break from sin. And uh, secondly, it consists in a positive orientation of life towards God. Now, let's just quickly show that this is about conversion. And one of the things I have you (coughs) seize on, we're going to unfold this and unpack it in in much more depth, but, but we can see here this is about conversion because of this word and because of the prepositions, okay? The word and the prepositions. The word turn here is a word that basically means you turn or return. That's its literal meaning. If you were to look it up in a dictionary, there it is U turn or return. It is to be going in one linear direction only to stop, to spin on a dime, and go the opposite direction. Now, it turns out that this word came to be in the hands of the apostles who were describing uh, the spiritual experience of conversion, that this was a good word for it epistrephami. And you can see that notion of a of a conversion, of a radical reorientation of life now by the prepositions to and from. To and from. You can see here with the second one, from it is a a separation. It's a preposition of separation. You turn from. See that? It's a separation from something which is idolatry. And now a directional preposition with to or toward. You turn and separate from idols and you turn towards God. That is the story of the Thessalonians' conversion in a nutshell. And that's the wonderful story of God's grace and how He changes people and converts them and brings them to Christ and it's told with an economy of words. But I want to unfold that now and unpack it so we can grasp the force of it. Since Paul is using only a few words because he doesn't have time to spend expounding upon the point theologically. After all, they already know about it. We need to think about it and place it within the Scriptures and what we know about conversion. So we'll think about the definition of conversion. And one of the things you discern throughout the New Testament is there's two words that are sort of bunched together. Two words that describe this process of conversion. And one of them, one of the terms that's used for conversion is change your mind. Change your mind. Except it's not translated that way uh, in the English. Uh, You read it in your Bibles as repent. But literally the word means to change your mind. The, The base word there is mind in the original we have an example of it in Acts 8.22 where the Apostle Peter says to that man named Simon, repent of your wickedness. And you already remember the reason for that is because Simon has just witnessed the Apostles laying hands upon these believers in Samaria and they what, received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them. And whatever the experience was tangible and visible and obvious, and so Simon, being a magician, was stunned. And he reached into his pockets and grabbed all of his change. And he said, Peter, I give you all the silver I got for that. Peter rebuked him. Change your mind. It's wrong. It's darkened. It's caught up in a world of falsehood and lies and disorder. Change your mind. Now, that's the first word that's used. And I said it tends to come with this other one that we've talked about here from our text that is translated turn, epistrepho here. And this word is just a shade different because now it's not the mind as much, it is the will See, we're trying to shade in the picture. What is a true conversion? What are its roots? Why does it happen the way that it does? And so you have the one which is about changing the mind, and you have the second term which is about the will. It is about the determination to go in a different direction. It is the outflow of a changed mind. There's one text in Acts where they're both used together. It's Acts 3.19. And it says, repent and return. Same words, and there's a good example of how both of these terms together give a full and complete picture of what a true conversion is. And whether you remember the names in the text, I really don't care, as much as you grasp the concept. Paul doesn't use both of them here, because it's assumed that the change of mind has occurred. But the thing that is so obvious here as the Apostle Paul speaks of the life of the Thessalonians is they've experienced both things. Their minds are changed. You don't turn away from a life of idolatry without a change of mind. So he says here, you have turned. Turned. And the result or the root of the turning is because of the changed mind. And so they've turned away. And so that's your first thing here in the definition of a true conversion. It begins with a change of mind which leads to a change of will. But here's the thing about it. It's not just something that happens in the head. It's not just something that happens in the heart. Yes, both of those are true. But now it flows out into the life. And so the second... Aspect to a true conversion is separation. Separation. Now, you can see the separation that's fairly obvious to us here in our text. Because the Apostle says, you turn from idols. And there's your separation. But imagine what that meant. Imagine what it meant. As far back as these Thessalonians who obviously were pagan, they weren't Jews, we can't say this is a part of the, the Jewish cohort which was converted through Paul's preaching in the synagogue since uh, the Old Testament command structure is far too clear at its heart is the idea of thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images... Can't imagine a Jew being described in this way, or even a God-fearer who'd been hanging on to the congregation we're thinking of here. His raw converts from paganism, and as far back as they uh, ran uh, the program on my family tree website, what they found is a family full of idolaters—people who never do anything different than worshiping false gods. I remember years and years and years ago, in my undergrad program in Greco-Roman culture and studies, I I read this book that really grasped hold of, uh, of my thinking Because what it tried to do was situate a 20th century person into the mindset of one who lived in antiquity, particularly in the Greco-Roman culture. It basically said this. We underestimate how much idolatry was a part of the very fabric of their life. See, Christians go to church on Sunday. We talk about believers carrying their faith as a mountain to the world throughout the week. But in paganism, your whole life is wrapped up around the constant maintenance of your relationship to the gods. Because there were gods everywhere in pagan thinking. There wasn't just the big pantheon gods. Of course they were there. But there were gods for absolutely every part of life for your home, as property markers, for the pantry. That's one that got me. There was actually God's for the pantries, for the, the dry goods you would put away in your closets. <laughs> There were gods for hunting, there were gods for fishing, there were gods for travel, there were gods for childbirth, there were gods for absolutely everything you can think of. And it was the, the duty of the devout person, everybody had to be, to constantly service and maintain this relationship through sacrifice and offering. Otherwise, they were terrified that gods were going to get them. I bring all of this out to point. I'll tell you what a radical revolution of life is in view here when it says, "You turn from idols." It's a good thing they did because of what idolatry was. It's counterfeit religion. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. Romans chapter 1, which is one of the most powerful and profound exposés on idolatry in all of Scripture. He says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. One of the things that strikes me about idolatry as Paul exposes it is, number one, it is a conscious turning away from the true knowledge of God. It is a conscious and willful turning away from the true knowledge of God. Because the Apostle Paul says, from the very creation, the things which are true about God, His invisible nature and His Godhead are clearly perceived. It's an intellectual term. The mind knows. For that reason, he says, all are without excuse. That's the beginning of the root of the sin of idolatry is the intellectual awareness that you're rejecting the knowledge of the truth about God. And then the second component to the sin is bound up in this word exchange. It means to substitute one thing with the other. And what is it that's exchanged? Well, the terms are lofty. They've exchanged the incorruptible glory of God for the corruptible image of men, of four-footed beasts, of creatures. Man-made images and conceptions of religion. You see, it's an entire way of thinking grounded in the rejection of the true knowledge of God. That's what makes idolatry offensive. And whether it's involved with um, bowing down and worshiping little graven images or or worshiping uh, your appetites, that's also idolatry. Worshipping money. Worshipping anything that the creation offers and the world steepens in offers to you to find ultimate satisfaction and meaning in. That's idolatry. It's counterfeit. It's false religion. In spite of it having all the trappings of what is religious and maybe feel like it's full of devotion, it's a lie. It's knowingly counterfeit. See, in order to turn from that, there has to be a massive change of mind. And then finally, the thing that is uh, maybe the linchpin and the argument against the, the biblical argument in expose of idolatry, it's the worship of the demonic. Deuteronomy thirty-two, seventeen: They sacrifice to demons, to gods, whom they have not known. See, he equates the, the worship and service of idolatry there with the sacrifice to demons. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10.20. He says, the things the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. You see, my point here in all of this, when we're thinking about the nature of a true conversion, one of the things that we're saying is that it's a real separation from what is Sinful. It is a real conscious separation from sin, grounded in my own awareness and assessment that it's wrong. And then my willful determination to know that it's wrong and to turn from it. Because it ensnares my soul and brings me under the judgment of God for my sin. And then finally, conversion is a reorientation of life. It's a reorientation of life, and that's fairly easy to see here in that initial phrase, you turn to God. You see, it's not just that conversion is negative. It's not just I stop doing certain things. It's that I stop and I separate, but now I'm affirming, I'm grabbing hold of something true, and I'm devoting myself, I'm reoriented in my life towards it and what it is is the reverse of that dreadful and awful exchange the Apostles spoke of uh, of exchanging the incorruptible God for corruptible image of man. It's now in reverse. I've exchanged the corruption of the sinner's heart and ideas for what is true, the incorruptible and glorious God. That's genuine conversion. All of that is what the Apostle is speaking of here, as he speaks about the report that other people have noticed as they've gone to witness the life of the Thessalonians. Something marvelous has happened to them. This is the testimony of true conversion. We think about that this morning. We discern what it means to be converted. That's one thing that we're supposed to take away from our text. As the church reads this, as the church proclaims it, we are supposed to learn first of all what is a true conversion. And it's important to know that because there's so many counterfeit stories of conversion. What is it to be truly converted this morning people of God? Number 1 it is to have a conviction of my sin. One of the great statements to me in the Reformed literature about uh, conversion is found in the Heidelberg Catechism. And it asks in question number two, how many things are necessary for thee to know that thou may live in this comfort happily? You know what it's referring to? It's referring back to question and answer number one, perhaps the best single summary statement of the joy of Christianity. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I with body and soul am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of of the devil. That's that glorious statement of comfort that the Christian has. And I says, "Well, how do I live in that? How is that mine? How do I know the blood of Christ is for me?" Question 2 says, "The first thing I must know how great my sin and misery is. You see, no one is truly converted without knowing that, first of all. I must know! It seems to me that's precisely why that Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, is uh, at the top of people's list of favorites. Because in the very first stanza is that declaration of conviction of sin. I am a wretch. I am a wretch. I was lost. I was blind. This is the um, telltale sign in many ways of a true Christian conversion. It begins right here with this deep, personal, profound, and powerful sense of conviction of my sin. If a person hasn't had conviction of their sins, they've never had an experience of grace. Sadly, you can hear it when people talk about being Christians. Sadly, I've heard far too many people talk about how uh, they have beliefs or whatever. And it all feels very superficial because the more I listen to it and I try to unravel its threads and discern its meaning, one thing I'm constantly not hearing is, I know my sin. And Jesus is my Savior. There's no way to know the joy of Jesus without knowing Jesus is a Savior from sin. If you don't know your sin, if you're not convicted of your sin, you don't know grace. You see, in order for the church to proclaim good news, it has to proclaim bad news. I've never yet met a joyful Christian yet who didn't start their testimony there. I was blind. I was lost. I am a wretch. But I must go on beyond that mental conviction. It has to have this story of separation. Maybe I'm dating myself again. I'm quite certain I am with this. Used to be the old evangelists would have these uh, big rallies. and They'd ask people forward and give their life to Jesus and all that. And uh, a telltale sign of conversion as they were told to go back to their to their house and bring back their rock and roll records. I mean, most of you don't even know what a record is. It's a little thing that spins around, makes a popling, popping, crackling sound, and the music is marvelous. But you had to bring those and you had to break them and they had a big bonfire and you'd throw your rock and roll records, and your paraphernalia, and your t-shirts, and everybody that got converted would sit there and watch it all burn up in the flame. You see, it was to signify and symbolize I'm separating from my sins. That is uh, conversion. <coughs> Convicted of my sin. I'm separating from my sin. But there's one last step here. <gasps> Reorientation. Your life is lived under the Lord. We seize on that clause initial placement. You turned to God. Radical reorientation of life. People of God, this morning we know what a a genuine and true conversion is. It's a, it's a conviction of sin. It's a separation from sin. And uh, it is a reorientation of life. And as much as we say that this morning, that this is what it looks like to be genuinely saved, and this is the testimony of a true conversion, I think it's so fascinating that the Reformed, when they looked at that model of conversion from the New Testament, they said it wasn't just about once turning. They said it's about the Christian turning. It says, yes, we we rejoice in that. We love to see this initial turning. But they would argue that this is indicative of the model of the Christian life. And the reason is because as long as we live, we always have the body of sin with us. And so the believer is to be daily and regularly and perpetually being convicted of their sin and separating from sin and reorienting their life away from sin. Is that you this morning? Is that how you view the Christian life? This desperate need to to constantly come under the conviction and awareness of sin. That's why we read the law in the worship. We read the law in the worship here and we have an express time of confession of sin both publicly and then privately as a means of teaching ourselves this is the Christian life we've been called to uphold a standard and we fail and so what we need to do is regularly confess our sin to reach out for that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and to affirm the call and the obligation of being the Christian, which is that I reorient my life to Christ. Is that you? Is that how you're living the Christian life? So many have gotten this confused over the years. They say, well, I asked uh, Jesus into my heart once, and that's good enough. Well, it's good to look to the Lord Jesus for salvation. But we do it again, and again, and again, and again. Not because our salvation is in doubt, but so that we humble ourselves under the knowledge of our sin. We're constantly knowing the joy of our salvation as we turn unto Christ, and His shed blood, and to His cross. That's true conversion. True conversion is about that great separation. There's something else in our text here which uh, is now about um, conversion consisting in a positive orientation towards God. It's fairly obvious to us here, but there's just something I I, want to do, maybe nerd out for just a moment with you on the grammar, because uh, if if you would open your Bible and look down, I, I would have you see here that when he says, you turn to God from idols, you have to serve, And then it says, a living and true God. You move into verse 10, it says, to wait. Both of those phrases there are explaining more about what it means to turn to God. Grammatically, we know that. It's explaining, what does this great conversion mean? What does it look like positively? Well, it means to serve God. And to wait. So let's unpack that just for a moment here. The first thing that the Apostle Paul says is that the new Christian life is about what? Service. It's plain as day. This is what the turning to God means in positive terms. I have turned to serve God. And it's interesting as you look at this term throughout the New Testament, it's regularly used to talk about this is what the believer does. And oddly enough, it's grounded in something that we find absolutely unsavory. Which is the relationship between a slave and his master. When we think about slavery, we're horrified at the thought of slavery. One person being owned by another. But the apostles latched hold of that social institution and said, there's an image in it which describes my relationship to Christ. He is my master. He is my Lord because He has paid for my life with His precious blood. What do I owe Him now? Service. Service. Paul describes it as hearty service. True conversion then is an awareness that having been redeemed by the blood, I now serve because of the blood. I now serve because of the blood. And it's really quite vivid in terms of the object of service here how Paul brings it out. He says, you turn to serve a living and true God. Notice that isn't that uh, just such a powerful and dynamic statement? Living in truth—it's just the opposite of of idolatry, isn't it? Idols aren't true. The apostle—maybe um, you'll remember this—in in one Corinthians where he takes on for three, four chapters. Um, meat sacrificed to idols. You remember how it was tearing up the Corinthian congregation because some people felt like their conscience wasn't bothered by going to the grocery store and buying the meat. Remember that? There's no Ralphs or Albertsons in the ancient world. You bought meat at the local market and the meat that was at the local market was meat that was sacrificed in a temple. Uh, The Jews' conscience was offended by it. The the Greeks who'd grown up under it weren't as long as they didn't go into the temple and get it. They buy it at the marketplace. It's, I, I don't have time to get into the whole argument. It doesn't really matter as much as this. Paul initiates an entire conversation about whether the believer can eat meat sacrificed to idols as long as they bought it in the marketplace by saying this. Note note what he says. We know there's no such thing as an idol. That's his beginning point. We know there's no such thing as an idol and that there is no God but one. So think about that here. He's describing the object of service, the living and true God. And Well, what he said is, you know what's so true about the God whom you serve is he's alive. He's alive. And as a result of their conversion, they realized that, that their life had to be radically reoriented. You know, people of God, this is you. This is you this morning. This is this is what you do in your life. Is you are given breath every single day as a believer for a single purpose: serving the Lord. That means every day that you have in this world is a gift from God. Every day then of your life ought to begin with you planting your feet on the floor with a thank you and praise the Lord for I have life today. The greatest privilege that you have every single day of your life is to wake up as a servant of God. That's what your life has been given for. So interesting to us here that these Thessalonians turned away from a life of idolatry which to them meant constant service of the gods to now this new life which meant constant service to the God who's living and true. They were blessed. Notice the other part of this positive orientation in turn waiting for Christ expectantly. See this word here? And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now this word to wait uh, means to wait with something wait for something with tremendous expectation and anticipation. To to find your joy as you look towards it. Hopefulness. And one of the things that the Apostle says which marked their entire life was all of a sudden now, after having spent an entire life looking to what was imminent and close and near, and just right before them. He says their whole new orientation is not just service, but they're looking to Christ from heaven. And I don't take that to mean that they thought that Jesus could return at any moment as much as I take it to mean that they saw their hope is grounded in something that is out of this world. You see, the hope and the joy of the believer is in the resurrected Jesus Christ. All the world has to offer us here is death. I know we don't like to talk about that. I, I not long ago, referred to you an article which uh, did some um, massive quantitative work on a vast body of people. And what they found out was that the human mind has this mechanism whereby it shuts off the thought of death because it wants to guard itself from that contemplation. The reality is you're going to die. Everybody you know is going to die. Everybody you love is going to die. And the only hope is Christ. And the reason why He is hope is because of what Paul says about Him here as he describes that posture of waiting. He's the one raised from the dead. He's the one raised from from the dead. I am struck by how uh, the apostles make this foundational to Christianity. When the apostle Paul wanted to explain to the Thessalonians the things which were of first importance, do you know what he listed? The resurrection from the dead? when he wanted to challenge a false ideology which was penetrating the Corinthian hearing at least, what he did was say, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, your faith is vain. There's no Christianity without a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of His resurrection, we have assurance of our own. And because of that, we wait with hopefulness for the return of the Son from Heaven who will unleash life in this world. I'm struck by the clarification here. Jesus. We already know who the Son from Heaven is who's been raised from the dead. But He adds Jesus to remind us of His humanity. His clothed In your flesh and blood. He's true God and he's true man. And our hope for the resurrection of our own rotten body is Christ. He redeems the buried body. And brings it to life to quicken it. For life. The last thing that's said here is. Who rescues us from the wrath to come tells us something about the Christian message, doesn't it, is that we need a deliverance. That's what Jesus has done. He's delivered us. And he's delivered us from something very specific here. Wrath. You may have saw this last week and here I'm not dating myself. A very well-known, prominent professional athlete who was raised in the Christian faith said he couldn't get along with his mom and dad anymore because they believed in a backwards Christian faith. The heart of his disagreement with his parents was this. I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn most of the beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this? I thought about that, and I said, "What a foolish and ignorant statement! H- have you read the Bible? Did your parents whisper verses in your ear when you son your mama's needed? Did you hear John three sixteen? See, it-, it just truncates the message into this uh, this grotesque idea, as if at the heart of the Christian message isn't this profoundly wonderful, beautiful Savior." has turned God into this bug zapper who's just constantly in wrath, squashing people. That isn't the Christian message. At the heart of the message of Christianity is this Savior whose name is Jesus, who's the eternal Son of God, who died on the cross for sin to deliver us from wrath. I'm sorry, it's nothing like this grotesque image of an impersonal God who has a lust for killing people in judgment. But you see, distortions of the Christian faith, distortions of the Christian faith are the expression of rebellion, of sin. We need to replace those distortions with truth, and we see a a wonderful replacement. The Thessalonians knew the story and they loved the story and they lived their life around the story. They lived to wait for this great and precious Savior who delivered them, body and soul, from sin and from all the power of the devil to be His very own. That's the love of God in Christ. Do you know the love of God in Christ? The heart of the story of the Christian message is the love of God in Christ. He loved you. He sent His Son to die for you. And whoever believes in Him will never perish, but have everlasting life. The Thessalonians caught up in a culture of death. Heard that and they said, I turn to God from idols. We turn to God from death to life. Father, we thank You for this beautiful testimony which is authentic and true, which has at its heart the testimony of the powerful work of grace in the life of those who are caught up and lost in sin. That Jesus, our powerful, glorious, wonderful, living, resurrected Savior, delivers those who believe in Him from wrath. I pray, Father, that all who are here would know the joy of that. And as they know the joy of that, they would do what these Thessalonians did. Turn to God from idols to serve the God who is living and true. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.